Notice so we have no choir uh, behind me today because they're off for a well-needed break. And uh, I said, Joe, I need somebody to help lead singing. I am not going to lead singing. But I said, I can do one, you know, you could do that, that, the one that comes after offering, but you have to do a song that's very simple that I can lead. But even still, I was, I have more fear of leading a song than preaching a whole sermon, okay? <laughs> and I know for, I, I have some family watching, they probably heard me on the live stream singing, and it probably didn't sound very good. So I apologize to that for everyone in live stream had to hear me lead that song. Well, we're so glad you're here uh, this morning uh, to hear God's uh, word. Uh, the title of my sermon this morning is The Apple of His Eye, The Apple of His Eye. And it comes from uh, two texts. I'm going to take two, but actually I'm going to get into a third one, as you will see as we get to the end of the uh, sermon. So let's, uh, let's hear God's word. First, we'll read Deuteronomy 32.10. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And now turning to the first half of a of small verse in one of David's psalms, which was a prayer, he makes the statement, keep me as the apple of your eye. May God have his blessing to the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the time we've spent together thus far worshiping you, and Lord, we offer up to you our adoration and praise and worship because you alone are worthy. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given us, and Lord, I pray today that I would just be an instrument, a vessel of your word that you pour yourself through. I pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds to the truths that you would have us to get from your holy word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the uh, expression or metaphor, the apple of my eye, is a very popular one uh, in songs and in poetry. From uh, some of the older folks may know of Louis Armstrong, has it in one of his songs. Shania Twain, if you're a country uh, lover, and if you're like rapper, Big Boy had it in one of his uh, lyrics. But if you look at all genre of music, you will find the expression, apple of my eye, in it. And there is a reason why that's the case, because it's a, it expresses love, warmth, closeness. It is something that we all cherish when we think of that apple of the eye. But what is the origin of this metaphor, apple of my eye? I did a little research on it, and I found it quite interesting. It's an exceedingly old expression which first appeared in Old English in a work attributed to King Alfred the Great in Wessex in 855 A.D. The title of his book was Gregory's Pastoral Care. But you really start to see it. You see it later in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm sure some of you have read that, which was published in 1600. And it was flower of this purple dye, hit with Cupid's archery, sink in apple of his eye. Now I can mark that off that I've had the Shakespeare in one of my sermons. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't understand poetry very well. <laughs> 
But we see it first used in biblical terms in the King James translation of the Hebrew Bible where it appeared four times, two of which we'll read today. But the problem is that in none of these four instances in the King James Version is the Hebrew word for apple ever used. Instead, the word for pupil, eye, like in your eye, is used. Because the phrase comes from a Hebrew expression that literally means little man of the eye. Now, how romantic would that sound? You'd say, you are the little man of my eye. <laughs> Guys, you think you would, they, she would look at you like you're strange, right? Little man of the eye probably refers to the reflection of oneself, if you think about it, that one sees in the eye of another person. So the idea is to be the apple of someone's eye, you are so focused on and watched closely by that person. Your very image is in the central of their heart. Think about it. The only people who can, you can see that in are those that you get very close to. You have to get in their space. You literally have to, you could see your reflection in their eye. All right? So there you have, you, for you that study etymology, you know, the development of words, that's where apple of the eye comes. But it's a.k.a. little man of the eye. In our first reading today in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we find this phrase in the verse, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. First, a little bit of context. Who is the him? Well, the him is the nation of Israel, God's chosen elect people. And this verse is part of a rather large song of 43 verses that Moses wrote and read to the nation of Israel who were preparing to enter into the promised land. Moses was about to die. God wasn't letting him go in. He was passing on the chain of command to Joshua. And God warns not only Moses, but Joshua says, you know, Joshua, this people that you're going to be taking in to the promised land are going to be an obstinate people. And they're going to be a people that are going to forget me. And so God asked Moses to write a song. He write a song. God warned Moses and Joshua that Israel will, quote, turn to other gods and serve them and despise him and break his covenant after they have eaten and are full and have grown fat. In the land of milk and honey. Most of you who have read the Old Testament know that that happened. But before we castigate the nation of Israel, let us ask ourselves, are we not like that sometimes? We enjoy God's goodness and plenty and forget him and end up serving the very good things he has given us by making them idols. We must always, even as believers, be on guard. So God, knowing the people's inclination to be unfaithful and realizing there is power in song, right? Power in worship, power in the memory, he instructs Moses to write a song that would serve as a testimony in future years. It would be something that they were to repeat year after year after year to their people to remind them of who God is, his character, and also to provide a warning as to what would happen if they disobey God. 
This song is prophetic, and it's a warning to the nation of Israel. I commend you read, go back, when you have time, read, read chapter 32. It is a beautiful and powerful song, and it would rank up there with any of David's. In fact, you knew Moses is already a prophet as well, right? or a, a poet as well as a prophet, right? He wrote Psalm 90, a very familiar psalm to many of you. All right, let's look deeper now into this verse. First, we see that he, God, Yahweh, you look up the Hebrew word, it's Yahweh, the unspoken name of God, found him, who, Israel, he found them and separated them as a people and made them his own. You know the story, it started with Abraham, right? The call of Abraham, and then his son, Isaac, and then there was twins, Jacob and Esau, and God took and blessed Jacob, not Esau. He found Jacob. And just as God finds them, he finds us. You're going to see a lot of parallels I'm using with the Old Testament and the New Testament, some comparisons of how the Old Testament was the nation of Israel, the New Testament is his church. God has always been about a people. He's about a people. He's about family. He's about his church. Um, this beautiful expression, he found him, is common to the Old and to the New Testaments as a description of God's first revelation of himself to man. You might remember the story when Hagar went off, when Sarah sent her off, and she's out there crying in the in the wilderness, and it says an angel of the Lord came and found her by the fountain of water in the wilderness. We saw it also in the life of Jacob when he was out there. It says God found him in Bethel. So he found them in a desert land, the howling waste of the wilderness. Now, you know, he also led him into the wilderness, right? He delivered the people from Egypt, and then he brought them into the wilderness. It was supposed to only take 40 days. It ended up taking 40 years because of their obstinate, stubborn, rebellious hearts. It took a while. It didn't take them long to get out of Egypt, right? You've heard this before, but it takes a while to get the Egypt out of them. Same, same as when, as Christians, right? When we're, when we're saved, when we become Christians, you know, God changes our heart, but there's still a lot of worldliness in there. There's a lot of things. He takes time. That's called the sanctification process. So he took them. He found them in where? It says a waste. The waste of wilderness, right? That word waste literally means emptiness, confusion. It's formless. You can visualize it. There's no clear path, right? Anybody have you ever been out in a wilderness or area where I used to... Uh, live was stationed at Las Vegas at Nellis Air Force Base, and I loved to mountain bike. I would go out in the, in the outskirts of the city, and you could get out there in some places, and you're like, you better remember, you know, where you started from, and there weren't many trails to ride on. And this is what he's talking about. It was chaotic, no path. Doesn't that explain our life before Christ in many ways? The lost are walking in confusion, and emptiness. On the outside, it may look like they're not, but they fill their lives with immorality and drugs and alcohol and success, material possessions, things to fill the void. They find it doesn't satisfy, and they need more, and they go aimlessly on. They get to the end of the road, so to speak, and they wonder, is this all there is? 
They don't recognize that great truth that Augustine so poignantly said in his confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You see, we were lost in our sins and trespasses, walking aimlessly in the world in confusion. We were a people walking in darkness who needed the light. And as the woman who found her lost coin and the shepherd went after and found his lost sheep and the prodigal son who was lost was now found, so we are found by our Savior. For it's Jesus who came that said, the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. And just as he saved the lost in the wilderness outside of Egypt, he saves his people. I love 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We were like aliens. We were like orphans. And he brought us into the family. He found us. We are his people. Secondly, we'll get, I'm going to get to the apple of the eye. He encircled them, right? There's just so much in that one verse. So much in that one verse. The Hebrew word for encircling them means he surrounded them on all sides. We saw this in the wilderness, right? With the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Not only does God find his people, he surrounds them and he protects them with his presence. And as the people of old had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, we have his Holy Spirit. It's been given to us as believers to live in us. Jesus told his disciples that it was to their advantage, it was to their advantage that he go away. Think about that. Because I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. So not only does God surround and protect his people, but we go to the next one. It says he cared for them. Think about that. God cares for you. God cares for us. This idea that God instructs and carefully guides his people is seen here. Again, we now have what? The Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth. And just as he led them through the difficulties and the chaos of the wilderness, God, by his Holy Spirit, leads his people today in life. When you're going through a difficult time, when you don't know the answers, the Spirit is there. You cry out to God, say, Lord, lead me, guide me. But now that gets to the fourth point, what I want to talk about the most was, and it says, and he kept them as the apple of his eye. The use of the word here must be taken as indicating that Israel is ever in the eye of the Lord, the object of his constant and tender care. Just as the pupil of the eye is closely guarded against harm, so God protects his people, and they are at the very core and heart of God's affection and vision. God watches us closely. God is with us. His people, Israel, were special to him, his elect, and so are we. I don't think, and the reason why I, I don't, we don't really recognize and realize how much God loves us. We don't think about it enough. But he loves us. I mean, when you really get in the word and, and, and take time, he, God loves us. 
His eye is on us. Just like his eye saw his, ch- his child, Jacob, who became Israel, get through the wilderness. God loves us. I was trying, you know, I can't come up with a, 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 the great illustration, but I came up with this one. It's almost like, so, and you have to be a parent to understand this one. So when you have children, you love it when they're, especially when they're real little, right? And you go to their Christmas concert, right? And there's your kindergartner and first grader up there singing in the mass of children, right? Where is your eye on? You only see your son or your daughter. Yeah, you see the group, but your focus is laser-like. And you got your camera and you got your everything focused on your child, right? Because there is so much affection and so much love and it's almost like you just follow them and everything else blends out. That's the kind of love God has for us. It's very distinct. It's very unique. It's very individual for each one of us. He loves you that much. And what else do you do when you get it, right? You go home and you put it on Facebook and say, here's my son singing or my daughter because you're so proud. It wells you up with love and joy. That's the kind of love that God has for us, his people. We see Paul speak of this in Ephesians. It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, listen to this, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He loves us. He calls us. He loves us and keeps us close. Again, think of the idiom of the little man of the eye, referring to that tiny reflection of yourself that you can see in other people's pupils. God is that close to us. His affection is that strong for us. And you know what? Think about it. When he looks in our eyes, who's he see? He sees Jesus. If you have been bought with the blood of Christ and you are his child, you're, we have his righteousness when he looks in our eyes. See, a lot of times we pull back. We, we say we can't get close because we've got shame and guilt. But he's, he's changed us. And when he looks in our eyes, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Beautiful thought to think about. And furthermore, it's not just that they were the apple of his eye. Notice the verb. He kept them. Kept them at the apple of the eye. And you will see as we go into the next verse why I bring that out. Our God is a keeper. He keeps his people. When Jacob had his dream and angels were ascending and descending on the ladder, the Lord God said to him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to the land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Our God is a keeper. Psalm 121.5 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. He will keep us in what? Perfect peace. Those whose minds are stayed on him. God will keep us wherever we go. We're going to transition now to the, the second passage. 
Good time for me to take a drink, too. Psalm 17, part A. Keep me as the apple of your eye. This is a prayer of David. It's a prayer of uh, vindication or judgment against his enemies. He's in a little bit of trouble. We don't know if it's Saul trying to kill him or the Philistines. We don't know. But it's definitely a prayer that he's in trouble. In fact, verse 1, he says, he starts off, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Verse 9, he says, The wicked who do him violence... And he mentions my deadly enemies who surround me. Clearly, David is in trouble, going through a rough spot, and he's crying out to God for help and protection. Because David is struggling in his face through this difficulty, he asks God to keep him as the apple of God's eye. Why? It's as if God is not the apple of his eye. Well, is God the apple of his eye? Does God still see David the same? Is anything changed? So what's changed? David's view. So David, in essence, is praying. He realized he has fallen out of favor in his eyes. But he hasn't fallen out of favor in God's eyes. God still loves him just as much. And he's still the apple of God's eyes. But he needs to pray. Do you ever feel like that? I mean, that's why we have a lot of prayers. You read a lot of prayers in the Psalms, right? Because there's, you spend time in the Psalms, you find things where you've lived and identified with. But many times we feel like we are out of God's favor. You may feel shame. You may feel guilt. You may feel like, oh, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. And, and so we have to cry out to God, pray to God, say, Lord, help me. Help me to recognize that I still am the apple of your eye. David needed to be reminded of Moses' song, which, you know, in actuality, I think he was, right? Because he used the same phrase that was in the song we just read in Deuteronomy about apple of my eye. He used the literal Hebrew phrase. And let me ask you a question. David of all probably loved the law, right? What was Deuteronomy? Part of the law. Part of the first books, the Torah, right? The five books. David probably knew this verse. This probably came back to his recollection. And in his prayer, he's repeating what Moses had already said. You know, sometimes it seems to us we are prone, we talked about today, prone to wonder, but we're prone to forget about God and his goodness and that his hand of protection is upon us. You know, whether it's the troubles we're going through, the, our sin, our guilt, or whatever, our neglect of God, we become so consumed with the cares and riches of this world, we forget that we are the apple of God's eye. We must be reminded Every day that he loves us, we must hear the gospel, the good news every day that God loves us so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross for us. That is why you and I come and worship on Sunday. We need 
to come here and hear the word of God. We need to hear the revelation of his love to us. We need to be encouraged through his word. And that's why we come and we worship each week. Let me give you a couple of some practical things uh, that we can do from, that we can learn from these passages. First, number one, we must remind ourselves of our past, where we came from, right? We were all in the howling waste of the wilderness, lost in our sins and trespasses. We were apart from the work of Christ and God's watchful eye. But he brought us out, right? He took us out of the wilderness. And he continues to walk through the difficult times we have. Isaiah the prophet reminds us to look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. He was telling the nation of Israel, you know, you could see the picture. I used to love uh, Fred Flintstone, right? Who used to watch Flintstones? Right? Barney Rubble, Fred, and where they work at the quarry, right? And there was all those big rocks down in the quarry, right? And Isaiah is saying, you need to remember you were one of those rocks that were in the quarry and God brought you out. He lifted you out. That's where you were dug from. You were taken from that. We have to remind ourselves so many times where. That's remembering our salvation, remembering where God has brought us. You may be right now going through a difficult spot and you seem like you have no progress but go back and say, well, I, I'm, I'm a lot further than I was before because God has brought us out. Number two, we must remind ourselves of God's continuing goodness and his love, especially when going through difficult times. David was having doubts just as we do in life. Our sin, our trials, and just the mundane activities of life cloud our vision sometimes. We forget about God's goodness, and we don't give him thanks in the daily blessings that he provides. You know, that is the great indictment. If you read Romans chapter 1, we always talk about, go down to the, law, the end of it where, you know, and they were given over to this and given over to that, you know, and to, to acts with men, committing indecent acts with men and women with women. We look at that. But if you go up in verses, we tend to forget, you know, what they forgot. The great indictment, they didn't give thanks to God or honor him. We need to give thanks. We need to be a thankful people. Grateful people see the goodness of God. Ungrateful people do not. Why do we know that he is good and he loves us? Because we are the apple of his eye. And he loves us. Think about this. I'm just going from scripture. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Some of you have more than others. I'm actually starting to lose hair. My hair's getting thin. My wife told me, I think my new medication I'm on is thinning out my hair. I don't like it. I look at the back of the mirror. I'm like, but he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you because he knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows you because your frame was not hidden from him when you were made in secret. He knows you because your days, every one of them, was written in the book when as yet there was none of them. And finally, he knows you because your name was written in the book, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, written before the foundation of the world. 
when we remember that and really think about it, we cry out with David, the psalmist, say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. We know that we are the apple of God's eye because the Father called us, the Son came and died for us, and the Holy Spirit regenerated us. The triune God is involved in our salvation. All right, I'm going to get to a third point. I'm going to go to another verse. I probably should have put it in at the beginning. It's one of the texts. It's Proverbs 7, 2. Now I'm going to get even more practical. This is how to help us, because, you know, we're all, we all struggle with really recognizing God's love and really recognizing that we are the apple of his eye. How can we, what is our part? We have a part to do, right? Proverbs 7, 2, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. There we go. There it is again. Did you hear that? Keep my teaching, the word of God, as the apple of your eye. Proverbs is all about the law, right? The word of God. Jesus Christ is the word, the word made flesh, the living word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus, the word of God, the apple of your eye and my eye? Does that bring you great delight, great satisfaction? Maybe the question to ask is, who is or what is the apple of your eye and my eye? What is it that we love and get close to and give much of our time to? What is it that we cherish? What do we focus so much time on? For those of you who have uh, iPhones, you can just go to the settings where it says time screen time and we could find out what we like. I won't ask you yours if you don't ask me mine, all right? The problem with the Israelites in Deuteronomy was that they came into the promised land they got fat, dumb, and happy, living on the blessings that God had given them, and they forgot God, even after God warned them. In that song, in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, it says, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So this is precisely why God told Moses to read them the song. And that song, which was the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit given directly to them, was to be repeated often to the children of Israel. A reminder of God's faithfulness. These same principles apply to us today as believers. It is no different. We are to keep the word of God as the apple of our eye. We are to hide it in our heart, as the psalmist said. What? So that we may not sin against him. Jesus said the same thing. We are to what? Abide in my word. Let my, your word abide in me. We are to long for it. The problem is, is that our hearts can only have so many apples. I know I'm probably stepping on a few toes, mine included. And the issue isn't how much Bible reading and studying you're going to do. The issue is, do you and I delight in the Lord? Do we delight in God's word? 
We are the apple of his eye. He wants to be the apple of our eyes as well. That which we value and cherish and keep close to us. That's why Solomon is telling his son to keep the commandments. The word of God is the most important and closest thing to him so that he won't forget it. By the way, where did Solomon learn this from? Who was his dad? David. Maybe it was David who penned Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. It's a beautiful picture of one who has the word of God as the apple of his eye. Maybe with Psalm 19, 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Or how about Psalm 119, which is, you know, if you read Psalm 119, if you've been through Psalm, the real long book, it's all about what? God's word, right? It's all about the word of God. Verse 97 says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You see, it is when we keep Jesus, the word of God, as the most important thing in our lives, the closest thing to our heart. When we hide that word in our heart, we will see God's goodness and character in a much brighter way. Because he speaks through revelation, through his holy word, by his Holy Spirit. You know, God's purpose in his revelation through his words was to make a relationship with us. To be friends with us. To recreate us and make us new through his Holy Spirit. I hope my prayer today is, brothers and sisters, that, that you are the apple of his eye that you know that he found you in a desert land and he encircled you and cared for you and he saved you. And I hope that you know the love, the great love that he has for you and that every day he sees you as the apple of his eye. Now let us make his word in him the apple and delight of our eyes. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your great mercies and love that you extended to your people, even in the midst of their obstinacy and rebellion. You loved Israel, and Lord, you love us. You love us, your church, and I thank you for those that are here that uh, are hearing this word today. Lord, if there's anybody that does not know you, that has not confessed you as their Lord and Savior, I pray By your Holy Spirit, you would cause them to be born again. And Lord, for those of us, we just need re-strengthening every day. And we need to recognize, Lord, that uh, we put other things in the way. And you are not the apple of our eye like it should be. Pray that you would help us, dear Lord, by your grace and mercy to see you more. So that we can say with David the psalmist that we delight ourselves in the Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
For him of response, today is number 78.